Well, good morning, everybody. Hope you got a good night's sleep. We did. I did. So uh, I'm excited about diving in today. Uh, joking with the guys at the table this morning, this is just a half day. That's all it is for me. It's just a half a day work. So uh, I have opportunity on a number of occasions of the year to teach all day on a Saturday. So um, don't be afraid. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to endure. I'm used to it. So um, I'd like to, to start this morning. Like What, what Corey just shared is, uh, is obviously a burden of my heart. I, I shared that last night, how uh, passionate I am about equipping the local church uh, to minister uh, to one another, to provide the care for one another that uh, God wants to really minister to us uh, by His grace, through His Word. We talked last night about the Word of God being sufficient to, to, to be the, the means that God has given to us to provide that care, the Spirit of God Himself being the agent of that care. And then uh, after that, we talked about really the theological ground for that care really taking effect, that we have been united to Christ uh, by faith, and therefore we can walk in newness of life. We're, we're dead to sin. That's our position in Christ, and that's a, that's a definitive reality, though we're plagued by indwelling sin, the flesh, the body of sin. It, it doesn't have power or authority over us, but it whispers in our ear, day in and day out, calling us back to those old habits, that old manner of life, I think is how the, the Bible describes it. We have the privilege in, in Spokane of having a, uh, a biblical counseling center, and uh, though that's, that's, that's kind of what I do, um, I, I don't believe that the church is always called to have a formal counseling ministry. Uh, I think that the, the, the more common and probably the, the, I'm even going to say more biblical, which sounds really bad, but the more common and the more biblical model is that the body of Christ is ministering to one another in the context of, of everyday life so that, so that a formal counseling center doesn't even need to exist. That, to me, would be the biblical preference. And we are constantly getting people walking through the doors of our counseling center saying, there's no one to care for me at my local church. Uh, we've had a number of situations where someone has come in with, with dire needs, the kinds of, of needs that go beyond just spiritual needs, but have trickled into, they've got physical needs that need to be cared for, maybe even safety matters that need to be looked after. And a counselor meeting with them once a week cannot care for them. They don't, they don't really need a counselor first and foremost. They need a church family. They need a body to come alongside them, and, and they wander in. And we've, we've called their pastors, and they're like, oh, we're so glad they're talking to you because we don't do that here. We don't, we don't counsel. We refer people out. And, and I was like, well, that's not what they need. They need you, you, your church body. They need a family to come alongside and help her with the children, and they need, uh, they need someone to make sure that she's safe. They need someone to help provide for her needs because she's being neglected uh, by her family, by her husband, or whatever. So complicated situations, and so sad that the, the leadership of a local church would literally say to us, on a number of occasions it's happened, we don't care for people that way. It's frightening. Um, now, I, I went to the Master's Seminary, and honestly, I had the, the obligatory counseling course. That's all they had. 
that all was required is a three-credit class on pastoral uh, counseling. Uh, but as soon as I got into full-time ministry in 2000 out in New England, and I, I mentioned last night, they'd been decades of, of bad or shallow biblical teaching there, and people's lives had, had really become a mess. I learned really fast that that obligatory uh, pastoral counseling class, as good as it was, hadn't equipped me for all the nuts and bolts of digging into people's lives and hearts. And so I began to get as much training as I, as I could after that. The first situation that wandered through the door that was more than just some parenting advice or uh, some, a quick one-off on you know, a marriage struggle or something like that, um, and I, I don't really have the time to go into the whole story, but let me just say it was a young uh, mother of four who's, uh, who had been raped in college, who had then gone on to have a relationship with a, a, a drug-dealing uh, abuser who also you know, physically abused her. He basically beat her up and left her for dead as she was scooped up by uh, a a dude, I mean a real dude, a real cowboy, heavy equipment operator in New England who threatened the drug dealer. Now she's got her knight in shining armor. She marries her knight in shining armor. And six months after their wedding, he gets diagnosed with a brain tumor. Six months after that, he was, he was dead. She so desperately wanted to have his children that they froze vials of his, his sperm. And she convinced his best friend to marry her so that her first husband's children would have a father. So she marries someone not because she loves them, but because she had this idolatrous desire to have children through her first husband. They go on to have four children, though along the way with all the artificial insemination she was doing, I think she had had multiple miscarriages and horrible experiences. And when I met her, she was, she was suicidal. She was having hallucinations. She was paranoid. She thought her husband was out to get her. She was seeing things. Um, you can imagine, and she, was, uh, she had attempted suicide as well, so it was a complicated situation. I, I called the counseling pastor at Grace Community Church and said, help, <laughs> you know, I'm, I'm a young, young pastor. This is like my first counseling case. What do I do? And, and the counseling pastor at Grace Community thought I was joking. He was like, no, no nobody's got all those problems. I'm like, no, she really has all these problems. Uh, and um, and so I, I dove in to try to help her, and she was another one that she didn't just need an hour counseling appointment a week, right? She needed the care of a local church. She needed a group of, of ladies who could come alongside her. She needed so much more than just uh, an hour counseling session. But we have, we have kind of gotten to a place in the, in the church, just broader evangelicalism in the Western world, where this idea of providing soul care has, has gone by the wayside in many places. And again, I'm not talking just about uh, formal counseling or, or, or what we do. I'm wearing the Counseling Center swag here today, and, and, but that's not really what I'm talking about. I mean recognizing that all of the most basic problems of, of life are things the Scripture speaks to, and therefore are things that you and I ought to be able to at least speak into at a, at a basic level so that we can encourage one another, so that we can comfort one another, so that we can instruct one another, at times admonish 
one another. Bring the truth of God to bear in people's lives. So this morning in this session, I, I kind of want to convince you fully. Like, I think you know this, but I want to convince you fully, yes, this is something that, that we need to understand as a church, but more importantly, something I, I need to be committed to just as a fellow Christian, to, to desire and strive toward just caring for others in the body of Christ the way God wants me to, recognizing that I, as no one individual can provide all the care that, that people need, but I want to be a part of providing spiritual care for fellow members of the body of Christ. While we're in a position, perhaps, where uh, it's, it's probably more common in American churches for pastors to refer counseling situations to, to someone outside their church, that was not always the case. If you go back in history and study the way in which the Puritans and the early Reformers ministered the Word of God to people who were experiencing problems in their soul, they were very, very faithful. In fact, that big stack of Puritan paperbacks is, I mean, two-thirds of them are on what we would call counseling issues today, right? And they're still very useful tools because those pastors who were also, you know, good theologians, good Bible students, knew how to minister the Word of God to people who are experiencing problems. In our day and age, it's far more common for someone who's having what, what was traditionally considered you know, problems of, of their soul, you know, struggles in their soul. It's far more common if they don't go to a, a counselor that they go to a physician. Now, in the days of the Puritans, people who ended up with their physicians for those things uh, were not treated very well, right? There was all kinds of crazy things that they did back then. Out, out of ignorance, I think with, with pure motives, but out of ignorance, you know, they're, they're bleeding, you know, people that have sicknesses and, and they're doing things that actually were detrimental, not really understanding things, but that was the kind of stuff that happened. And people who were experiencing any kinds of symptoms that maybe you would attach the word bizarre to things. You know, we, we have labels for that sort of thing nowadays, right? Schizophrenia or, or bipolar. Those people were, were ostracized and institutionalized and often treated in cruel and inhumane ways. Um, Bob Kellerman has a book called Counseling Under the Cross, how Martin Luther applied the gospel to daily life. And he, you know, we think of Luther as this the bold reformer, right? I mean, hammering those uh, 99 theses to the door and you know, basically changing the, the, the trajectory of Christianity, which he did. But Luther was also first and foremost a pastor. And he ministered to people who, frankly, were bizarre. Kellerman tells one story of a man who was melancholic, that's depressed, extremely depressed and psychotic, like out of touch with reality, believed himself to be dead. And so he hid in a, in a cellar because he just wanted to, to rot, refused to eat and drink. Why would you waste food and, and drink on someone who was, who was dead? Another man who was a part of their church thought he was a rooster. Thought he had that big red thing on his head and, and a long beak and he would go around cock-a-doodle-doing. 
Another man in his church was a voluntary retentive. That's someone who refused to, to urinate and defecate voluntarily, like holding it in. Able to, by talking to him, Luther was able to trace his fear uh, of relieving himself to a sermon he had heard about works righteousness and controlling your body. And he believed if he could perfectly control his body, that he would be accepted by God. And so on its face, it sounds really bizarre, yes, but it was actually a gospel issue, wasn't it? He misunderstood the very means that that God has provided in Christ to be right with God. And instead of understanding that my righteousness is not my own, I can't earn my way to God, he, he had a wrong understanding of the gospel, thought he had to fully control his body in order to be saved. Luther, as Kelamit documents, and it's an interesting read if you want to read it, Luther cared for those men, and he befriended them. He built a relationship with them. He integrated them into the relational life of the church. He brought the gospel to bear on all those questions and pressures in their life, their confusion. And Kelman quotes a Renaissance historian, not a believer, not, not a Christian historian, just a Renaissance historian who says this about Luther. Luther shows none of the dehumanizing amusement that often animates even learned physicians when they report certain kinds of cases. Again, I tell those stories, it's almost impossible for us not to laugh, isn't it? It's almost impossible. And this historian is saying, well, that's basically how people thought about them. They were a joke. He says, but with Luther, the cure was brought about not by trickery, but by friendly persuasion, by appeal to common humanity, by company. You see that? Just befriending and loving and caring for these men and bringing the truth to bear on their story. He says this entire story is informed by a strong sense of sympathy for a patient who becomes stigmatized by society. Now, I, I say Luther and the Puritans are the forefathers of what we now call modern biblical counseling movement, but, but really that was just faithfully ministering the word out of care and sympathy for others. But somewhere the thread of soul care was snipped. That soul care that we see in the Reformers and the Puritans got snipped to the point now where uh, it it doesn't seem like soul care belongs in the church. And that's, in, in many circles, that's just the prevailing notion. So around the turn of the 20th century, a couple of things happened that really created a perfect firestorm for that happening to undermine the church's role and the church's authority to provide soul care. The beginning of the 20th century, there was a shift in the way uh, the church began to think about pastoral duties and and really the nature of the church. The the church began to function more and more like an organization, like a business. We had the rise of of Sunday school programs and program-oriented ministry models, and pastoral duties began to restore to be restructured and thought about differently so that the church would be led by someone who could manage the organization. And I would say it hasn't been a total redefinition, but there's been a shift. 
And I think we need to be honest and recognize that there's, there's been a shift. And most pastors, I, I think, spend more time in meetings and organizing programs than they do devoted to the Word of God in prayer, which is what Acts describes, right? If, if we're honest, we're saying, yeah, I spend a lot of time in that. And, and that, I think, culturally is, is what the world expects nowadays. So I'm not bashing programs. I'm, I'm not... Trying to, uh, I'm not trying to be some kind of renegade or revolutionary here to get things back the way they used to be. There's, there's cultural factors in there that we need to think about. But those, those changes began to be reflected in theological education as well. And part of that change, uh, secondly, happened as there was this rise of, of secular social sciences and the, the, the psychotherapeutic methods of counseling. So you've got... You've got Freud and, and Skinner and Carl Rogers and a bunch of people in the field of psychology, and they began really Darwinian, you know, evolutionary, let's think about the, and anti-Christian as well. They began to redefine the nature of man and the nature of, of man's problems. And that psychoanalytic way of thinking about the nature of man and the nature of man's Problems really just grew and grew and grew in the 1900s. So that by the 1950s, uh, there, there was very, very little effective training, even in the theological seminaries, for how to care for souls. It, by the 50s, it had, it had kind of already crossed that line where caring for souls, those problems are things that psychiatrists and psychologists do and, and they were equipping pastors to not do that. And Jay Adams, who's kind of the, the modern day, uh, he, he kind of reinvigorated the church to begin thinking about the care of souls again. When he took his first pastorate in the 50s, he was kind of the product of all that. But he, he had a similar experience to me. Like, ugh, there's people here I need to care for, and I don't know how to care for them. And so he began to, he went back to the scriptures to try to figure out well, how... How did this happen? Why is it that, generally speaking, everyone around me and my my for him it was his Presbyterian denominations had come to the conclusion that when people have really difficult problems, that we need to leave it to the professionals, send them to the professionals. You're just a pastor, you're not a professional, and so that's kind of what happened, and it it brought the church to this place where. Real care of souls wasn't even being thought about as a pastor's responsibilities or, or even like how does this happen in the context and in the life of a local church, in the church family. And I, I'm really thankful for Jay Adams. For all, for all of his weaknesses, he had far more strengths. And he began to untie the knots that really were created by all that psychological confusion and restored, I believe, and it's the, the, the movement continues, restoring to the church this mindset that this is where soul care belongs. When people have struggles and troubles in life, this, this is where it belongs. So I want to I prove that to you fully. I've kind of explained a little bit how the broader evangelical world got to the place where we've, we've sort of lost that as an emphasis, but I want to go back to the scriptures and show us why is it that this is certainly and definitely something God has called us to? Again, we're, 
we only have to have this conversation because the theology of modern liberalism and the psychology of secular humanism stepped in and cut that that cord, that historical cord that, that existed of soul that soul care belongs in the church. Now I'm I'm not gonna really talk about what is biblical counseling. I'm passionate about that too, but I'm really just talking about ministering the word of God lovingly to one another in the context of the church. Uh, that sufficient word that we talked about last night. And I'll challenge you to think about some of the practical implications of that in this session. So I'm gonna going to describe biblically four reasons why this care, this, this culture of care should exist in the local church. Number one, the first reason this culture of care should exist in the church is because the Great Commission says so. The Great Commission mandates that spiritual care belongs in the church. C- counseling is just discipleship. That's all it is. And when people have really uh, really, really difficult problems, you know, like that might get diagnosed as clinical depression or, or PTSD. I just call that crisis discipleship. It just needs to be a little more focused, maybe a, a, little, a little deeper. And, and, and probably many of us are not going to get to a point where we're going to be super effective by ourselves, ministering to folks that are in profound straits. But that said, I still think counseling is just discipleship. It's just helping people know and follow the Lord Jesus more faithfully in the midst of their struggle, whatever it might be. And there's a lot of words in the New Testament, I think, that, that would uh, help us see how that care is ministered. There's the words that are trans- translated comfort, encourage, exhort. There's the word that's translated instruct or admonish or, or counsel from Romans 15, 14. Uh, I think the ideas of teaching and shepherding and discipling, they're, they're all kind of saying the same thing. I mean, think about all those words, comfort, encourage, exhort, instruct, admonish, warn, counsel, teach, shepherd, disciple. There's, there's far more similarities in, in those things than there are differences. It's kind of actually sad that the English word counsel sort of has some baggage. If I were to start from scratch at Faith Bible Church, I wouldn't even call it a counseling center. Right? Don't tell. Um, I'm far from home. I can safely say such things. We'd have to change the logo. Um, So I I would call it a discipleship center because I really think that's what's happening there uh, day in and day out. And And the the modern English word counsel, counseling, is, it kind of has some baggage. People use that word and we might think something that more resembles uh, secular therapy than we do biblical discipleship. But here's what's key regarding the Great Commission. Right? Jesus says in Matthew 28, 19, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Verse 20, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always. Now, in the Great Commission, Jesus doesn't just just say his people are to be informed or taught the body of, of doctrine 
around which the kingdom will be built. Sometimes I think we, we think of discipling that way. Discipling is helping people understand biblical doctrine and, and live out spiritual disciplines. That's discipleship. And some of us have narrowed it to that. But notice when Jesus says make disciples, he's saying that involves teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Keep teaching them to, to live it out, to keep it, guard it, observe it, live it out. It has to do with how we're living in relationship to God and relationship to our neighbor. Love God and love our neighbor more than it does to a body of knowledge or doctrine that the Pharisees have proven for all eternity that knowing doctrine can't be the, the sole goal, right? Living doctrine, living the truth needs to be the goal. Faith, faith without works is dead, James taught us. And the Scriptures are full of commandments of Christ that we're called to embrace and obey. And if we're making disciples, that we're to train others to, to know and guard and keep or, or observe, right? And so you're, we're not, I don't think, going to disagree that all Christians are called to live this out. Go and make disciples, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Well, Jesus taught in Matthew 6, 25, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you'll put on. Right? Is, is your life not more than food and the body more than clothing? He goes on, verse 31, Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? The Gentiles seek after all those things. It's, it's the Gentiles that should be anxious, not the believers. But seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow. Tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. Jesus has commanded us at least three times, just in this context, do not be anxious. We can't seriously be teaching Christ's followers to observe all that He has commanded because all authority in heaven and on earth is His and believe that people who experience fear and worry and anxiety or even panic attacks are beyond our expertise. Yikes, right? We have to understand how to teach people to observe the command to not be anxious. And now you're all like, sweet, when is that seminar? Uh, it's the advanced class. Um, can't go into all of that, right? This is, this is helping you see, I need to understand that better. I need to help others understand that better because God's called me to help folks who might struggle with anxiety or maybe you're the one experiencing anxiety about life. And maybe what you need is a, a solid, deeper, transparent, biblically informed relationship with, with one of the people sitting around you right now where you're just transparently sharing your fears and you're talking through them and bringing the... the the attributes of God and the truth of Scripture to bear on those very real questions of life and how, how can I focus my heart and my mind on the character and promises of God 
and instead of on the things that are causing me this anxiety. That's one reason why this ministry of care belongs in the church. Because the Great Commission, I think, says it must be in the church. A second reason, we talked about it last night, the sufficiency of Scripture. If, if the sufficiency of Scripture is true, and, and I, I hope we proved that last night that it is, then this ministry of care, of mutual care for one another, belongs in the church. We have the means uh, right here, and, and we are indwelt by the agent who is the one that seals that union with Christ that is the theological grounds for spiritual change. We can, we have in His Word all things that pertain to life and godliness. We can, through His very great and precious promises, become partakers of the divine nature. We can be adequate, complete, equipped for every good work. The power of For life and godliness comes through the knowledge of Him. Again, pointing people to the character and the promises of God. The way, the truth, and the life. If we abide in His Word, then we are truly His disciples and we shall know the truth and the truth will set us free. Christians don't escape the corruption of this world and partake in the divine nature by by the promises and powers and philosophies of secular therapy. They don't. Those are the traditions of men at best. And more likely, because their roots are anti-Christian, are just the vain imaginations and empty philosophy that the Scripture warns us to avoid. Properly used, the God-breathed Scriptures do what we talked about last night. It it teaches, it convicts, it corrects, and it trains us in righteousness so that we can be all those things that we talked about. Remember from Psalm 19, reviving the soul, bringing, bringing life and vitality, that abundant life to those who are struggled and discouraged. It makes wise the simple. It informs the minds of those who are confused and who lack wisdom. It rejoices the heart for those who are despairing and discouraged and depressed. Bring them to the precepts of the, the right precepts of the Lord. It enlightens the eyes. Again, we, we, we see the Bible describing this sufficiency and power of God's Word to help us. And I, I th- seeing it is the easy part. Believing it fully, like we talked about last night, I think is, is the harder part. But I think, again, just, just as Jesus said, do not be anxious, do not be anxious, do not be anxious. The Apostle Paul in, in Philippians chapter 4 um, says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I, I say Rejoice. And if the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart, we, we aren't truly believing the promises of God and applying our belief in the sufficiency of Scripture if we're also saying that helping people who are depressed are beyond our reach. It's beyond our, our expertise. The sufficiency of Scripture mandates that we, we need to be able to help the anxious. We need to be able to help the depressed. 
Now, I don't think you, you individual, you all just got pointed at, one at a time, I don't think you are the sole source of care for anyone. That's the beauty of being part of the family of God, right? That, that we're going to come alongside one another and we're going to do it in, in, a, in a context of community. And a third reason why this ministry of care belongs in the church and, and how you all as individuals are going to get better and better at it is that the role of a pastor or a shepherd, I think, mandates that this ministry of care belongs in the church. Uh, I've always thought it strange that the words for overseer and elder are used much more in the New Testament uh, than the word pastor, but our, our culture has, has really owned that title, pastor, as the, the label most often used in, in churches. And we see the verb form of shepherding or pastoring uh, I think, which is emphasizing the role or the activity of, of those church leaders uh, more than its use as a title. I think, I think the title is only used uh, in Ephesians 4. One place we see elders being told to fulfill this activity, this role of, of spiritual care, is in 1 Peter chapter 5. Peter says in verse 1 of chapter 5, I exhort the elders among you, as a fellow elder and a witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's to be revealed, verse 2, shepherd the flock of God that is among you. Exercising oversight. Shepherd the flock of God that is among you. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory. But well, I, I like rewards. <laughs> Yay. I want to do that. But that shouldn't be our primary motivation. But there's, there's certainly the obvious implication in that text. If, if those who are shepherds are not shepherding, uh, at the very least, you will not receive that unfading crown of glory. Shepherding is just, is just feeding and guarding and nurturing and protecting and leading and guiding. You think about what is it that a real shepherd does in, in the field with his flock. Feeding, guarding, nurturing, protecting leading, guiding. And I say those things can't sufficiently be done from here. They can be done some, and it it can be done well, but not everything that a shepherd is called to do can be done from the pulpit without like genuine interpersonal relationships. And you see the Apostle Paul even numerous times doing both. He's exercising both personal and and private ministry of the Word of God to people he served. In Acts chapter 20, verse 20, he said he, he was declaring what was profitable, teaching publicly and from house to house. So Paul was teaching in, in smaller groups, I believe, to individuals. And later in that chapter, when he's uh, kind of saying his goodbyes to the elders in the church in Ephesus, he reminds them about his ministry there. He says, remember that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish each one with tears. Each one. He, he says it very specifically. He doesn't say each one of you, because he was talking to the, the group of elders there. I think he was saying he, he had gone from individual to individual in that church and ministered to them, instructed them, called them to both obedience, I think, and genuine worship and love for God and neighbor. 
He says he was, he was giving instruction to each one. It was personal. And you see that reflected in his letter to the Thessalonians when he reminds them in chapter 2, 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 and, and following, we were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. Being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our very own selves, because you had become very dear to us. And then later, like a father, we exhorted again each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. Verse 13, for this reason... We also constantly refer you to outside agencies for help with your spiritual problems. What? I mean, think of that is literally what modern churches are doing. They they can't believe verses seven through twelve and then do that. They just can't. It makes it makes no sense. And Paul's heart as a shepherd, his practice of ministering to individuals, of caring. For individual souls is, I think, the example that cements the principle that the, the role of, of a, a pastor and a teacher demands that this kind of care happens in the context of the local church. The, the worst, maybe the most startling passage in the, the Old Testament about the shepherds of Israel is Ezekiel chapter 34. And, and God, through Ezekiel, I mean, he rebukes the shepherds of Israel. He says in verse 4, The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought. So they were scattered because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered with none to search or seek for them. Man, that's scary to me. I mean, as a man called to shepherd the flock of God and see, uh, see those things and to think about the ways in which I've had face-to-face conversations with people who bear the name pastor and, and are just like that. Yikes. Now, we, we need to be reminded like Peter did. Um, Jesus reminding Peter, tend my lambs, shepherd my sheep, tend my sheep. And so, I mean, maybe this, maybe this point is, is more for your, your pastors and elders to hear, right? Uh, but it reminds us all that yes, this kind of care that the Bible calls shepherding, it belongs here. It belongs here in the context of the local church. So the Great Commission re- requires us to care for one another spiritually. The sufficiency of Scripture implies we should be caring for each other in all the hardships of life. The role of a, of a shepherd, I think, points out again that good leadership is going to be setting the, uh, setting the bar for that. And then the fourth thing is when we just look and see how God describes the local church. God's design for the local church reminds us, teaches us, implies that this ministry of soul care, mutual care for one another that belongs in the church. So pastors can't do it all. I'm, I'm here to tell you. Uh, 
I passed, the, the church I pastored in New England, it was small. There's 120, 150 tops, and then we planted a church. You know, most people will be like, that's not enough um, to plant a church. We did it anyway. So it, it typically ran about 120 people, and most of the time I was there, we had a second staff member, and we just, even he and I didn't have the time to care for everyone fully. So there was an obligation to equip the saints for the work of the ministry because pastors just can't do it. Uh, they just can't do it all on their own. And I don't think God's design for the church says that they, they should be. Jay Adams, I mentioned earlier, kind of uh, uh, sort of tilled the first row, so to speak, in the biblical counseling movement. His first book was called Competent to Counsel. And he, he got that phrase from Romans fifteen fourteen, which says, Concerning you, my brethren, I myself also am convinced that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, and able also to admonish one another. Or able also to admonish, he translated competent to counsel one another. That's where he got the phrase. A legitimate translation. He's, he's not like stretching it at all. But notice the, the bigger picture of Paul's confidence in the, the members of the church in Rome because he wasn't writing just to the leadership of the church. He was writing to the whole church in Rome. They were full of goodness and knowledge and had the necessary prerequisites to provide that loving care, that loving instruction and counsel that every member in the body needed to grow and thrive. That's essentially what he's saying, implying that this ministry of care, counsel, whatever you want to call it, is a responsibility that the entire body of Christ should understand and undertake together. The, the pastors, the shepherds, I think have, have the responsibility to set the example and to take the lead and also to cultivate the equipping of the whole church for those mutual responsibilities. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's why they had me come, right? Is to kind of jumpstart this process, perhaps, for you. But this is exactly what's described in Ephesians chapter 4, right? Where it says that God gives to the church pastors and teachers, Ephesians 4.12, for the equipping of the saints for the work of service. What kind of service? To the building up of the body of Christ, the kind of service that's going to edify one another spiritually, verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of of Christ. Again, it's, it's building one another up spiritually, fully, to maturity, to the fullness of Christ. And so that, verse 14, we're no longer tossed here and there by waves and, and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into Him who is the head, even Christ, from whom, and, and listen to how beautifully a properly functioning local church, local body, listen carefully to what, what it looks like. The whole body being fitted and held together 
by what every joint supplies according to the proper working of each individual part causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. That's a beautiful description of people in local churches building one another up, every individual doing its part. And it fits and holds us together. We, we grow roots together, right? We build relationships that are so much deeper when we're caring for one another at this kind of soul level where we're transparent and we're honest and we're like I described last night, this isn't my phrase, I learned it from Steve Byers, but one beggar showing another beggar where to find the bread. I've despaired. I've feared. I've been anxious. Let me tell you how God taught me. And I'm, I'm not the only experience. I'm not the only one that you probably need to hear from. You can hear from another who's, who's tread those muddy waters and found rescue and relief. Again, everyone doing their part is God's design. And those are, that are called to shepherd and teach sure are setting the, the course, I think, and equipping you all to do it better and better and better. That is what God has designed the church to do. So there you go, right? The, the Great Commission, the sufficiency of Scripture, the role of a, a shepherd, and, and the divine design for God's church all would tell us that this ministry of mutual care is something uh, that we're to be doing for one another. And I want to encourage you today, not just, not just convince uh, and convict you, oh, we don't do this very well, be encouraged that this is, a, this is a great launching point for a church to deepen those roots of commitment and understanding about what mutual care looks like. And I'd encourage you all to dive in. I mean, I'm not going to give a shameless plug for you know, getting biblical counseling training, but I do think that's a great place to start if you're struggling with how to figure out how can I encourage the depressed person? How can I strengthen that anxious friend of mine? I needed it even after 98 credits of, of seminary uh, training. I still needed to be equipped better. So uh, don't think uh, anything other than we're all growing toward this aim that God has for us. And I want to encourage you. What happened in our little local church of just 120 people is that as I began to get that training and as people began to, to find help and hope from God and His Word, that others jumped in. And before you know it, I had about 25 people, 25 adults out of the, the 90 or so adults had gone through some kind of counseling or shepherding training. And it created really what was a culture of care. It wasn't that everybody thought the same way or, 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 or said all the exact same stuff, but the conversations that were had in our Sunday school classes and in our small groups and in, the, in between the pews or in the parking lot on Sunday or at the coffee shops or uh, the, the, uh, the greasy spoons is where we met, um, the, it, it changed every conversation because people had a better understanding of how God's Word spoke into those real difficult issues of life. It really did create a culture of care with one another where people were helping people and they were all convinced that God and His Word was the source of that, that help and that hope. And so I want to encourage you 
to, to say, I want to be a part of that. Where when people come to Gold Country Baptist Church, they say, this is a place where people love and care for one another. And they don't sweep difficult questions and problems and struggles under the rug. They don't, they don't try to hide their weaknesses. Instead, they try to find someone who can strengthen them through it. And man, you, you do that. I mean, you do that and people will flock to Gold Country Baptist because there are so few places, and I'm sad to say so few churches, where people are talking about these really hard issues of life with compassionate, caring, but truthful language. So it's hard work, but man, it's so rewarding. And it's not just rewarding. It is going to knit your hearts together as a church family. And it's a glorious thing. That's my encouragement to you. This ministry of care belongs right here in the walls of of your local church and inside your church family. Let's pray. God, thank you this morning. Thank you for these reminders. Uh, I trust that they they really, truly are uh, reminders. And uh, we uh, kind of drift and uh, float downstream a little bit sometimes. Help us to, to paddle against the uh, the, the current of our culture. Uh, help us to be committed to being uh, and living out the principles of, of your word of mutual care for one another. We thank you that you are our great shepherd, that you are our, high, our great high priest, uh, God, that you, you understand, uh, having been tempted in all ways yet without sin, uh, you know how to minister care uh, to us. Help us uh, receive that care and comfort and then uh, comfort others. Comfort the next one with that same comfort that you've comforted us with. Let that be uh, the model and the pursuit and the longing of, of the hearts of folks here at Gold Country, we pray, for the glory of Christ and the good of his people. Amen.